world. Welcome to Discover Your Talent, Do What You Love. I'm your host, Don Hutchison. Every Tuesday, I interview someone from around the world who's discovered their talents to do work they love to create a life of success, satisfaction, and freedom. On Fridays, I interview an individual with many years of experience from one of the most popular or interesting occupations or professions who shares an insider's look at what it's really like to do what they do. Today, I'm delighted to bring you our featured guest, Ernie Vecchio, and our topic, A Day in the Life, What's It Really Like to Be a Trauma Psychologist? Welcome, Ernie. Thank you, Don, so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, it is our pleasure. Are you using your talents doing work that you love, Ernie? Of course. How could I not be? <laughs> All right. Well, we want to hear the whole story. Ernie L. Vecchio is a mentor, spiritual teacher, and trauma psychologist. During his 30-plus years career, he's treated over 10,000 patients who suffered severe trauma that ranged from amputation, head injury, sexual assault, and paralysis. Vecchio is a licensed clinical and rehabilitation psychologist who's written four books, including his latest release, Feelings and Reason, Activating Your Heart as Compass Despite the Ego's Interference, an international bestseller in four self-help categories. Well, as we discussed, Ernie, we want to give some statistics on the profession that you're in from U.S. News and World Report and the Bureau of Labor Statistics on this fascinating profession you're in. This is from 2019. Number one, the profession of psychologist is number 21 of 100 of the best jobs in the country. The unemployment rate is very low, 0.5%. There are 181,700 professional psychologists. The growth rate from 2018, actually, to 2028 is 14%, which is far, far higher than the average or an additional 26,100 jobs. Median pay is a little over 100,000. The top 25% is 113,000. Psychology is ranked number one of all the science jobs. And in the scorecard of stress and so forth and flexibility, the work-life balance is very high the flexibility is above average, and the stress is slightly above average, as I'm sure you well know. Before we dive into a day in the life, take us into the backstory of Ernie Vecchio, family of origin, where it all began, and tell us about the people and choices and changes that got you where you are today. I started out kind of a traumatic beginning. My parents, uh, my father was a, a, a Marine and did two tours of Korea. The second tour uh, on his return he had what they would have called PTSD today and met my mother and uh, they came together and they were both raging alcoholics. <laughs> so they were not really prepared for the children that they produced after that. And uh, so I ended up. Uh, well, let me ask you a question. Let me, this is, that's an amazing beginning. Uh, how, where were you in the hierarchy of kids? Uh, I was the youngest of two. Okay. Uh, I had a sibling that was a year older than me. And uh, okay. when my parents divorced, my mother left and took her and left me behind with my father. And my father stuck me in a VFW club and left me there for hours on end, you know, at three, four and five years of age. And so I ended up kind of roaming the streets. Uh, thank goodness I wasn't in a large city, <laughs> but it was kind of like the beginnings of becoming a juvenile delinquent. And so, uh, then so he, one, so he would just drop you off in the morning at this club. He would give me away. He would give me away at bars, you know, uh, uh, cause he, you know, he was an alcoholic. He would tend to give me away a lot to, uh, 
to strangers and then not come back and pick me up. And so when the welfare department, remember, this was in the 60s and welfare just started in 65. So uh, this was in the, uh, this was around that time, like 62, 63, maybe 61. I've kind of lost track of the years. But and when the welfare department found out about that, they started sticking me in uh, in, in different homes and they were as, as traumatic as the one I came from. So it, So that went on. Dawn from birth to about nine, I had all that insanity, and then I ended up in an orphanage at nine. Uh, and when I got there, they uh, and this was you know in the country, and I was on the back porch with uh, uh, some green beans <laughs> with some now, other. What, what, what city are we in now? We're in Lewisburg, West Virginia. I started out in Morgantown, and uh, and. So I'm in this little country town in Lewisburg with on, on a 600-acre farm with some other kids that were dropped off like myself, and they said, "Here's a here's the green bean. You you know, st- string these, and we'll come back and check you in in a minute." And I ran away 11 times. <laughs> so so uh, um, yeah, so that that was my start. And so I would say from and this is, this is an orphanage you in or this is yes, the other. Well, it was a, it was, it was a Presbyterian home for children, but, but technically it was an old school orphanage. Yeah. Uh, which could not run today because of child laws and whatever, and because they had to pay, you've got to pay kids to work now. Back in those days, they didn't pay you to work. You, 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 you worked to carry your weight birth to, to nine. You know, I had that insanity with my family of origin and then, and then being a child of the state for a couple of years and then ended up in an orphanage. Uh, so I was kind of in a turbulent place, really didn't, all that didn't calm down until I was like 11 or 12. And then, uh, and I started kind of getting used to where I was. And, and then around 14 years of age, I got into enough trouble that, I got kind of put in reform school for a few months, and and when I got out, I was on probation, and the the director of the children's home asked me if I wanted to go out for football and what I felt about sports. And being a smart aleck at the time, I didn't. I, I said, "What's a football?" <laughs> so so I go out on the football field at fourteen, and I literally run everybody off the field. I mean, I was just incredibly fast <laughs> because of I guess all the previous times of running away. And sports and athletics and coaches kind of became my surrogate father. And uh, and I became a small-town celebrity from oh. 14, 14 to 18. Got scholarships to play football. And well, let, me, run- let me ask you a question. When you're going through these times and you didn't have any underpinning of support from either parents, which is, you know, that's pretty seminal and pretty uh, traumatic to say the least. How did you get through those early, early days – what was your support? Who were your supports? Because, well, like like I said, it was a uh, it was a lot of coaches and a couple a, a couple adults that were not particularly professionals, just 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 people that cared about kids. You know, I, I was trying to find in my own mind, I was trying to find some idea of what what good was. You know, yes. uh, uh, and at a time when people were pushing God on me, and I and I really wanted to say, well, you know, you guys can can debate the God thing. I, I just like to find what good is. And so I, I came up with a, with an idea of what that was, which is when you don't live your life at the expense of others, especially yourself. Um, and so I began to kind of make that my mantra as a youngster. And, but, but really the identity, the grounding came in athletics. And, uh, I mean, as much as I was a star and a celebrity on the track and the football field, I could not feel any of that, Don. It was, you know, when you have shame as a demon, 
you know, you don't feel much with those accolades. And, uh, uh, and so I, and then when you talk about turning points, I, I, I was paying attention uh, to how life was kind of uh, getting behind me at certain times, and that's for the good and the bad. And when I began to see how life was really kind of behind whatever I got behind, uh, I started paying more attention what I paid attention to. And so uh, and a good example of that would be when I got out of college. I'm sorry, when I got out of high school and went to college, I was offered a full scholarship to play football at Marshall University. And because my father was still alive at the time and I still wanted to try to connect with him, I went to Morgantown to go to the state university there. And then the very next year, the whole football team dies in a plane crash. And so that was a, you know, I I feel like I had a lot of uh, uh, times in my life where I was dodging a bullet, if you will. uh, And I paid attention. Slow slow down on that part of the story. I I barely remember that. I do remember it. But, okay, break it down again. So you were in high school. You were you were a star. I was a star. I was you're still living. You're still living in the reform school. I mean, in the uh, orphanage, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I got and I got a full scholarship offered to play football and at two universities within the state, Marshall and WVU. I considered Marshall because they were offering me a full scholarship where I was only getting a partial scholarship at WVU. So but my father was still alive. And so and he was in Morgantown, which is where I was born. And so I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to reconnect with my father, this is going to be the time. So I went to Morgantown instead. And then the very next year, the the football team uh, were killed in a plane crash. And so I bring that up because that I had a lot of friends that were on that plane and and there was and I knew a lot of those guys. And so it was kind of like, again, another example where life was kind of was kind of protecting me. I was I was getting guidance as I was making some of these decisions later on in my life. And and I paid attention to this intelligence, whatever it was, it was guiding me. So uh and, I, and, and trust me, I wasn't a saint at that point at all. Why were, uh, you, not, why were you not on the plane? I took the scholarship at WVU instead. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the Marshall Scholarship was the full scholarship. Okay. The partial scholarship was at WVU in Morgantown. Okay. And it was track. It was track and field. Okay. It was not football. So, uh, so I took the track and field scholarship. And um uh, and that was the other piece, Don, you, when you when you talk about support and how I got through it, being a runner at a very young age uh, became my therapy, became my uh, form of um, meditation, if you will, uh, to to rid myself or to balance out the energy that I was because I had enough energy to charge a small city back then. Okay. So it so it gave me an outlet for all of that. And I was quite good. I was a click away from the Olympics as a sprinter. I was a good, I was a good athlete. Um, but again, what were your races? What, what did you, uh... I was a quarter miler. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and then, and then of course what happened later on in my life is I, I kept running. I ran all the way up until my uh, mid forties. I was a marathoner, half marathoner, and I was in the top 3%, 5% of the culture as a runner. Um, and and I still to this day uh, am very active, and uh, and so. What about Morgantown? What about the? Um, so you got that amazing track and field scholarship, and you were a runner. What did you study in school? How did you get yourself grounded on the academic side? Well, I did not know. I thought that I was too stupid to be in college. First of all, I had no confidence in my abilities at all at the time, and. Um, 
and I had a really bad stammer and I, I went to speech therapist for the stuttering. So I was an anxious kid on top of that. Uh, and so I just kind of, uh, I think I changed majors four or five times and, mm-hmm. uh, and I tended to just kind of, you know, if I had a good friend who was an accountant, I just, I went into accounting, you know, I didn't really have a, I had sure. no guidance. I had no sure. guidance and I fell in to uh, counseling and psychology because it was verbal and it wasn't a lot of standardized tests. Uh, instead, it was essay exams and it was verbal stuff. And so uh, because I had a learning problem with standardized testing. Uh, and then, of course, in high school, I know now in hindsight, I was pushed through a lot of courses because of my athletic ability, mm-hmm. uh, which I which I probably would have otherwise not have passed those classes. Uh, so I got some some grace periods through some of those. And so when I went off to college, I, I really felt like I was too stupid to be there. And, uh, and I was on academic probation for the first three terms I was there until I switched into the counseling psychology field. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and then after that, my grades you know, drastically improved. And, um, did yeah, you so, take, did you take to it immediately? The counseling psychology? Did you absolutely. find you well, found yeah, your, yeah. Did you found the modalities that related to your life? Well, yes. Well, and not only that, I was, uh, I, I left this out. Uh, once I became uh, the celebrity that I was in the little town that I was raised in, I kind of became a big brother to all the other kids around me in the, in the orphanage and just in the high school itself. So I was already counseling and helping people uh, as a teenager. I was already beginning to do that, but I didn't think it was that big a deal because it became because it came so easy. Oh. Uh, it was not something that was hard for me to do, and so I didn't think of it as a profession at the time, or that it was a gift at the time. Okay. Uh, but 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 right out of high school, my first right out of college, my first job was working with juvenile delinquents. And, uh, and at that time I had a bachelor's degree in psychology and the PhDs that were there at the time said, you need to go back to school and do this for a living because you're just really good with these kids. And I just thought, well, I'm good with these kids because I used to be these kids. Uh, but, uh, but so that was kind of a fluke, you know, uh, you know, fluke or not a fluke that I ended up working with juveniles initially. And I did that for only two years before I fell into working with people with disabilities. And that was, so that was a few years after. So, so what was it like here? You have this remarkably stressful and, uh, Oh gosh, I don't even know the words to use being abandoned by both your parents, but how did you take to working with those kids that were also in those situations? You just see yourself in each one of them. And was it easy to open your heart and share your, talents and skills with them. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, I had to learn that I, first of all, couldn't carry their pain for them. I couldn't carry uh, their traumas. Uh, And I think as a beginning professional, beginning helper, that's a mistake we all make that we, we think we can fix people by carrying their pain for them. Uh, I did that as well until I learned that you can't do that. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but certainly my background and my experiences uh, helped because I, I respected these kids for, uh, for who they were and where they were from. And I don't think that the mental health profession was doing that so much. So mm-hmm. they were looking at the labels that they were called rather than who they were. And, uh, uh, and so I was very, you know, I'm very good at, at that and have always been very good at meeting people where they are and, and connecting people in, in that way. Yes. And so that that part was easy. Uh, okay. And, yeah. And you did that two years. 
I did. I worked with juveniles for two years, and it was up in Ohio, uh, and they, and this was a detention facility for juveniles. And uh, yeah, so it, okay. I think I was twenty five at the time, maybe okay. yeah, twenty four, twenty five. Yeah. And you and your the folks you were working with said, "Hey, um, Ernie, you're good at this, but you need more. You know, you need more professional training." Yes. Right. Right after that, so you should go right back into right back into grad school. Yes, I did, and I and again, I didn't think I was smart enough to do it, but I did, and and then I, you know, thanks to the fact that I was on the right right path with that, uh, I, I did great. I did wonderful in all the coursework. The, the, I still had difficulty with standardized testing. In fact, the licensing exam, when I finally got my clinical degree, I, I had to take it multiple times and get accommodations, whatever, for it because of the learning disability that I had. Uh, um, and But and that was when all that stuff was brand new. That's when the ADA laws were, the ADA laws were just coming into play. And uh, so I took a lot of beating uh, from my profession because the psychology field in particular is is a test of taking a test. It isn't just an achievement test. It doesn't. And it's, and it's not a competency exam. Well, let, me more, ask, let me ask you this. So you go into where did you go to grad school? I went to grad school at WVU, which which then had us uh, uh, at that time it was called the College of the, the College of Graduate Studies. Uh-huh. So it was a satellite campus. Okay. All right. Did you did you did you go directly into, into a doctoral program or did you go into a master's program first? Uh, you've got, and that's the other thing that I got in the in the the pipeline of that, Don. Uh, the psychologists and the master's level people were still competing for those positions at that time. This was in the '80s, right. and I, and I was in one of the few states in the United States that allowed a master's person to get licensed. So when I got in at the graduate level and I was in pursuit of the doctorate, I found that I didn't need it. So I bowed out and just went ahead and took the took the other exams and became licensed. Uh, later, so I didn't get the doctorate. Is my point? Uh, okay. I could have, but I didn't need it okay. uh, to to become an independent practitioner. Okay. Now, uh, now of course you have to be. You've got to get the doctorate. So I so I had the I was like a, a semester or two away from the doctorate, so I could have gotten it, but it was just, it was one of those things I didn't need it. And and at the time I was really kind of tired of taking standardized tests. Because they really were hard for me. Yes, uh, yes. What was your what was your particular learning uh, disability? Uh, well, I had ADHD, which is no surprise, and uh, and my verbal uh, score, of course, was higher than my performance score. So, if you're looking at a hemispheres of the brain, my left hemisphere was 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 my strength. My right hemisphere was my weakness. And to be considered LD, you have to be 15 points plus between those two hemispheres. Uh, and, and you have to be in the average range. So my verbal was high average and superior, where my performance was just in the average range, uh, or that that right hemisphere stuff. And the irony of that is, is that that's what I ended up working on later on in my life, because the right hemisphere is really what gives us context, is the symbolic side of the brain. So okay, I all, all right. So there you go, and you, so you ended up getting your your MS in in what specific. Uh, aspect of psychology what was the degree in it was clinical yeah it was okay. clinical it was it was clinical in school psychology then i later specialized in rehabilitation that okay. was later I got, okay. I got i got more credentials after that yeah and that took a couple of years yeah yeah it was off and on but yeah yeah okay all right and then you and, and during that time were you seeing clients 
Oh, of course. Yeah, I was in I was in uh, when I left working with juveniles, uh, I came to a rehabilitation hospital where in the beginning I was a rehabilitation counselor. So in that in that environment, I had uh, a caseload of 50 or so clients and I was predominantly a therapist working with rehabilitation cases. I moved from therapist to psychologist while I was in that facility. And then when I did and then when I. Uh, completed that, and I want to say ninety one or ninety two. I then became a rehabilitation psychologist in the in the very hospital because it was a large facility in the very hospital that I was uh, was working beside. I became the clinical director there, oh. or the trauma psychologist there. Yeah. Wow, what an amazing trajectory for your career mm, with your background. But you just moved through it. You had a you had the guts and tenacity and innate talents to make it work. So how did you transition into spending most of your time on the trauma side? Well, I, I, I was always and still am today a therapist therapist. Uh, I've always enjoyed understanding the workings of the human condition. And, uh, and, and we've gotten, I feel like the profession's gotten really far, far away from that with where we are now with just cognitive psychology. Um, but but I've always been interested in in not just what made people tick, but really uh, looking at strengths and and looking at the weaknesses and how they kind of uh, have the symbiotic relationship with one another, and that you can't bypass the weaknesses. You have to kind of embrace and understand them to be able to work with them. And uh, and and of course, when you're working with trauma, um, people are, are having to reinvent who they are. I mean, they're going from uh, from being coal miners and engineers and accountants and whatever to totally being taken off at the knees and having to start all over again. Wow. And so and so looking at their strengths and weaknesses, uh, n- not so much what they lost, but what they had left was really key. And uh, and so I, I became quite quite astute at doing that. And then it just graduated from there, Don, into a much more deeper, deeper kind of understanding. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Good heavens, what an amazing, um, what an amazing place to be. You talk about you work with everybody from amputees to sexual assault victims. So, did, did you do you did you make that your niche at the facility, the hospital you were working? Did you find yeah, that just yeah. you specialized in that? Yeah, this this rehab facility that I was in had 250 uh, clients, and probably uh, I don't know, maybe a third or a quarter of those were hospital patients, and these were the really severe, severe trauma patients. I was the the clinical psychologist for the entire facility, but I I was able to uh, zero in on the hospital patients because I had a captive audience. In other words, they were there anywhere from 14 to 16 months as they're going through their rehabilitation you know, experience. And so it, it gave me a wonderful, uh, kind of, a uh, a starting point to work deeper with people. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I, I kind of started looking at that and it wasn't done by design as you begin to solve the Rubik's cube. That is the human condition. And you get into that kind of mindset, you go deeper and deeper and don't really realize how deep you've gone until, somebody else points it out to you. I mean, to me, it was just normal uh, progression. It it wasn't until I ended up teaching at at, at graduate school that I had found out that I had integrated something like nine or 10 counseling psychological concepts or contexts into one model. And, And when I did that, the dean of the counseling program said, you need to come and teach for us. People can barely do one of these models and you've integrated nine of them. 
And I'm going like, who, me? <laughs> I mean, I had no concept of, uh, of how far I had, I had gone and how deep I had gone with the understanding of the human experience. And so it became, and so once I found that out, I went, gosh, maybe I need to kind of, uh, kind of polish this up and, and, and think about it from a different angle. So that's kind of what happened later in my life is I, I thought, well, I, I, I'm, I think I'm onto something here. I need to help, uh, put this together in a way that people can wrap their heads around it. Yeah. So that evolved because as you started working with trauma victims, uh, you just wanted to know more about oh, the, yeah. so you just kept studying other experts and other modalities. You just, that, that's what you did to, to continue well, your understanding. Well, it was that, but it was, it was understanding uh, what real psychopathology is. Most, most clinicians don't really know what that is. They think it's a checklist on the MMPI or they think it's a, a checklist in a clinical interview. True pathology is just simply the wounded self. And there is no, there's no way to enter this experience and not be wounded. Right. Uh, and so to understand the impact of those wounds and how they're playing out in people's day to days, you know, in their, in their day to day lives was a, was a real challenge. And I, I discovered in a common theme in all of my patients that were coming back from adversity and that, the, and that was that there's something intentional and guiding and evolving inside of them that was pulling them into the present despite the ego's interference. And so I originally called that my philosophy, intentional guided evolution, uh, until I shifted it into gift and compassion therapy, because I, I mean, I, so I, I was playing around with what to call this, uh, because it wasn't, I didn't want to use religion, you know, religious terminology. Uh, but yet there was a really strong spiritual component that was, that was driving this. And so I had to come up with a way to talk about it and, you know, to kind of understand what is the symbiosis that's taking place inside of people and what is the driving force behind that symbiosis. And, yeah, so I spent a career understanding that. And it, uh, I used to tell people that it takes – you can crack open an egg, which takes just a minute, but it takes a lifetime to learn how to put the contents of that egg into another container. And that literally is what I learned how to do. Uh, is to, is to how to take the contents of the human of a human being that is in a cracked uh, tore open container and put them in a whole nother container. Are uh, you say are you saying that as you started working with all these individuals and you worked with you know over ten thousand that you found as you were working with them whatever their trauma was whatever their mental emotional physical state was spiritual state that there was I don't know if I got this right there was an inner light that you saw early on was that, is that what you're saying? There was, a yeah, yeah. I used to, yeah, I used to call it, uh, one of my first cases, Don was a Vietnam veteran. who was a paratrooper and he had had his internal organs shot out hanging from a parachute. Oh. And so he was in a, in a wheelchair paralyzed from the waist down, of course, and his internal organs were all plastic and he was addicted to Percocets and lower tabs and whatever. And he and I were the same age. He was 27. I was 27. Oh. And, and I thought, wow, I, you know, and he was so awake, so incredibly present and awake in his pain. And, and I remember at the time, how can I talk about consciousness or the unconscious or the spark to life in a way that this client's going to get it? So I used a metaphor of a candle. And I said to him, I drew a candle on a scratch piece of paper and drew a circle around it. And I said, the circle is your body. The candle is your spark to life. I said, what does this candle need to burn in a closed container? 
And of course, he was smart enough to know the answer. He said oxygen. And so then I drew multiple circles around that, that candle, and I stopped at 30. And I said, now, what I want you to imagine is that the human personality is every one of these layers. Psychology calls them defenses. If you come in off the street to see me because you're going through a divorce or you've lost a job or your girlfriend broke up with you, whatever, you may let me get down one or two of those 30 layers. If I amputate you, if I paralyze you, it cuts through all 30 layers. And what I witnessed happened, Don, is, is that of those 30 layers that I'm making up here, 26 of them just fell away automatically because of trauma. And now for the first time in that person's life, that candle was closer to the surface than since they were born. And so I needed to find a way to talk about that candle. I now have switched the name of that candle to your signature expression, that you come into this world with a particular uh, vibration that medical science uh, calls a burst of light. When a sperm comes in contact with an egg, a burst of light happens. Uh, uh, Of course, it's chemical. It's zinc. But nonetheless, it is a reverberation of a source. I am saying in my book and I'm saying in my experience in working with trauma that that is the birth of consciousness. It has to start somewhere. And, uh, and in that birth of consciousness is that intelligence that I said is intentional, guiding, and evolving. And I witnessed it in Baptists, Presbyterians, Catholics, Buddhists, agnostics. I mean, every, every religion. But yet I watch these uh, leaders come in, rabbis and preachers and ministers, and not give these people any comfort. They couldn't give them any comfort. But yet this model that I had, had kind of stumbled across was giving them comfort because it gave them context to understand what they were experiencing. So, yeah, it, was a, so it became a language problem to try to figure out a way to talk about this and not make it dogmatic and not make it, you know, you know take it out of religious terminology. Mm-hmm. So I called it a, a psycho-spiritual model for that reason. Okay, all right. Well, did you start even as, as you got into this, I guess you were in your 20s. Did you ever – did you start publishing work or do Oh, no, papers? no, no, no. No, this didn't become, this didn't become real. So, so if, if we're going to do the chronology here, right. this didn't hit me. So I, I entered the profession at 70, 1973, 73, 75. No, I guess 73. I come to the hospital at 75, 1975. I am not aware of what I have discovered until 1990, 1991, okay. which was when I went to work for the graduate college. And I walked into the classroom to renew my license because I was taking a course to get CEUs. And uh, somebody had just written a book on creative counseling techniques. And what he was doing was using three-dimensional things to teach theory, models to teach theory. And I looked at the instructor and I said, so if I understand you correctly, these creative counseling techniques you're referring to, he's using three-dimensional tools to teach psychological theory. And he said, yes. I said, I have a whole kit back at the house. He said, no, you don't. I said, yes, I do. So I brought in literally a bag full of three-dimensional uh, tools that I had created over my 20-some-odd career at that point. I guess it was not 20. It was 15 years career. And he was blown away. He said, you need to come and teach for us. This is unbelievable that you have done this, that you've integrated these models like this. And, and really, Don, all I was doing was when something wasn't working, I just created, came up with something that did work to access what people were experiencing. 
So I've taught this model to people with IQs of 40. I've taught this model to people with half of a brain. Their head injury has made them only have use of half their brain. I've taught it to blind people, to deaf people, uh, that this context is that teachable, if you will. Uh, oh. and, and so it was, it was kind of like I stumbled on it because I was driven to solve this proverbial puzzle. I, I felt like, I think I told you uh, when we uh, were off the air, I felt like Indiana Jones. I was finding these, these diamonds and rubies inside the human condition, but yet I was having to go through trap doors and fight dr dragons and demons. And by that, I mean I had to deal with the pathology of the patient that I was working with to get to these diamonds and rubies, but it was nonetheless still very real. And uh, the problem was language. I could not... You know, I struggled to find a language to talk about it. Uh, and so that's what my most current, you know, book is trying to do is to give language to this, give context to it. Well, after you, amazing, after you showed that to the professor in 1990, that was 30 years ago, uh, <laughs> did you did you then, um, did you teach, did you, did you? Yeah. Get to take yeah, this taught, message to a wider audience. I taught. I taught for twelve years, and I was the clinical director. I gave. We. Uh, he and I created a clinic together that did a million and a half dollars a year in free services to people. Um, yeah. So I taught. I taught twelve years at the graduate uh, college, uh, training psychologists and therapists at the time. At the same school. Uh, at the same school. Yes. Yes. Yeah. At the very school that I went to uh, to uh, to get my my CEUs from. Yes. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and then, and then, you know, plus I was the clinical director of that. At that time I had six jobs <laughs> at that time I was working is the trauma psychologist at the hospital that I was in. I had a private practice. I was consulting, I was teaching, I was the clinical director of a, of a free clinic. So I had six jobs. Um, yeah. Wow. But I still had not put all the pieces of the puzzle together until until much, much later, you know, I was still sorting things out. I was still, it was still, there was more information coming through to me about how to frame this and how to put this in context that was palatable. Yeah. So is this book, this book going to be, um, well, you've written four books. So did your earlier books get, get, um, good exposure in the academic world or in the world of counselors no, no, and psychologists? No. No. no, no. I started out. No, I, I'm 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 not the greatest writer. I, I, I mean, I, I I'm not a trained writer by any means. Um, but my my last three books probably were my best. I've written four or five, but uh, they were not like the one that I've just finished. Uh, my uh, I did uh, the Astonishing Dream of Job, which was the uh, which is the and I did what Carl Jung did with the with the Job story in the Bible and looked at Job's experience as if he was having a dream, and came up with a hundred or so spiritual insights from that. Um, and again, this was based on my trauma patients because I I said to people at the time that that if I've treated ten thousand trauma patients in my career, then Job would have been ten thousand and one because what Job experienced is exactly what my patients experienced. Okay. Uh, and, but it, but it was put in a context of counseling psychological theory. It wasn't put in a religious context at all. Okay. And, and, and then I did the soul's intent, which was the, the book that followed that, which was the premise that we think we get here when we're born, when we don't actually get here till we choose to arrive. And so arrival, uh, in the business of arrival is what I was watching my trauma patients being forced to do, which is to get here, to be present and in this experience. 
Uh, and, uh, and so I, that book was more about this idea of consciousness and awareness and embracing this symbiotic intelligence that you're born with, uh, and, and, and how to kind of incorporate that into your day-to-day life. And then the, mm-hmm. then the most recent book was pulling all the pieces together. And, uh, and, and now I have a developmental piece. I have a theory, I have a philosophy that's behind it, terminology, vocabulary. It's all kind of intertwined now. Uh, yes. and it doesn't exist in the culture in the, in the form that I have it. It does not exist anywhere. Okay. Uh, okay. Wow. Just amazing, amazing, uh, gosh, in these progressive, just r- radically stressful times, these, uh, these ideas, uh, wow, they're so needed. Well, let me ask you, um, what if, what would you say to someone listening to this, uh, obviously a student that, uh, whatever age is thinking about getting into the profession of, uh, of psychology, how would they listening to this interview, what are, what resources would you suggest they, they check out to, to learn more and just explore their, how to use their talents and abilities and whether or not it's a good fit? Well, I, I think that the, the, uh, the science of psychology is all over the place. In other words, any book that's out there that has to do with, uh, testing, diagnosis, assessment, the statistical aspect of psychology, which is the science part, that that's easy. I think that what I would tell young people today is, is that we need to remember that psychology's roots are in philosophy. Right. And that understanding the wisdom of the human experience is becoming slowly and surely a lost art. So I, I would I would encourage young people to to look at uh People like uh, like Carl Jung, like Joseph Campbell, who wasn't even a, a psychologist. He right. was just he was just a sage in his own right about following your bliss and and being your being your best best self. That 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 um, people. It, it, the, I think the number one complaint that people have in the mental health profession in general is they feel like they're not being seen, and by that I mean they're 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 instead of you seeing them, you're seeing their labels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and so and so that first label that they are so let's say their name is is Susan or David that's their first diagnosis and you want to help them understand who that is and and why that is why is David what is David what's his purpose and what's his reason for existing this is becoming slowly but surely a lost art because we've got so much emphasis in neuroscience on the brain mm-hmm. so 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 i would say to young people that the philosophical Kind of underpinnings of psychology is, is don't forget those roots, uh, the, the, and that the gold standard long before brain science was understanding unconscious motivations, and right. and where they come from and whatever. And so, what I learned in working with trauma is there's actually a symbiosis taking place there, meaning that all the opposing forces that are inside of us are meant to work together to get us into a present moment. They're only oppositional because we're, because we're asleep. If we're, if we're awake to that symbiosis, then it's incredible. And, uh, you know, when you go back to the chronology of my own story, I must have been connected uh, to that symbiosis for me to have made some of those later decisions and to pay attention uh, that life is in fact a teacher 
and and uh, and so I, I attempted to learn from whatever I was going through, not right away, but but eventually I did get there to a place where I was learning from my experiences, and that you know we call that depth in the culture, right? <laughs> when you learn right. from experience, yeah, right, 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 yeah. right. Well, just in a few sentences, what's your personal vision going forward? Well, I think what I'd like to do is to you know if if I have a if I have a gift, uh, it's that I have the capacity to, um, to see in the dark and that I, I want to help people understand that there is, uh, that there's a flotation device inside of them. There's an anchor inside of them, uh, that this road less traveled. You and I talked about this, that the, that we were not really stuck in the matrix as much as we're stuck somewhere between the Wizard of Oz, the Yellow Brick Road, and the matrix, and right. that uh, right. that the that the road less traveled is a real road. Uh, it's called less traveled because few people go after this inward journey unless they're somehow forced to do so. And I encourage people to do it voluntarily because it's not as scary as and 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 as frightening as they imagine. Uh, in fact, it's quite profound. Yes, exactly. Wow, Ernie Vecchio, what a great pleasure having you on our show today. Your journey is remarkable, and you every day are making the world a better place and have so many innovative ideas that that are for the good of all. How do our listeners around the world connect with you? Okay, well, it would be my site, which is myname.com. Uh, That's E-R-N-I-E-V-E-C-C-H-I-O.com. And then uh, Heart as Compass at Outlook.com is my email address. I also have a, uh, a little tiny podcast that I've barely gotten started again. It's called the Hardest Compass uh, Podcast on SoundCloud. Okay. If people want to go there, I do little sound bites there of the, of the context of the book and what the book's trying to say. And uh, so, yeah, those two places would be the natural place. Yeah. Ernie, where do people get your book, your recent release, Activating Your Heart as Compass Despite the Ego's Interference? That would be at my website, which is myname.com or okay. at amazon.com. Good, good. And how, uh, long is it, how long has it been out? It's been out, I think, since June or July. And if people uh, are kind of interested in doing a review on the book, I'd be more happy to send them a free Audible code to do that. I've got a bunch of free Audible codes. I'd be more than happy to share with people if they want to do a review on the book. Wonderful, wonderful. We'll all have, also have that in show notes. Good, good. Listeners know you can go to discoveryourtalentpodcast.com, click on podcast in the navigation bar, and there you'll find the details in our show notes. In closing, every one of us is born with unique talents and gifts. We don't learn them. We can't ignore them. They're just a part of who we are, our DNA. Whenever we discover them and use them in our lives and careers, we do not merely survive. We thrive in every way possible. So until next time, all my best, and whatever you do, have fun out there today. Oh,